Welcome to episode 27 in the first season of Justice Center Weekly from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm your host, Kevin Steele, and with me today is lawyer Allison Payovich, who recently returned home after spending the first part of her week in Ottawa at the appeal hearing of Brian Peckford, Maxime Bernier, and others as they sought to overturn a ruling of mootness in their case against the federal government for the vaccine travel mandate. Allison, not everybody knows what mootness means. Maybe we could start with that. And then uh, tell us about your arguments. Sure. Thanks for having me here today, Kevin. So basically what happened was we were all set to go and and argue our charter case about a year ago. Um, The case was set to be heard challenging the travel vaccine mandate for airplanes Uh, October 31st, I believe it was supposed to start a year ago. And the prime minister and the federal government removed the mandate in June of 2022 uh, with an announcement that it had been suspended, but could be brought back if circumstances arose and that they would not hesitate to bring it back. And the crown, uh, the federal government respondent, filed a motion for mootness to have our case struck because it was moot, meaning that the mandate is gone. Our clients have the relief that they sought all along. They can now fly. So there's no need to hear the case. And so we uh, we sent a team to Ottawa in September of 2022 to argue that point. I was not uh, one of the ones who argued it the first time because I was getting ready for the big charter hearing, which was to take place a few weeks later. And unfortunately, the federal court, lower court, uh, ruled against us and granted the federal government's motion um, to dismiss our case for mootness. And so basically, it was a finding that, well, um, there's no more live controversy, meaning the mandate has been lifted. And uh, there's a Supreme Court of Canada case that uh, guides litigants and courts in terms of uh, whether a judge should hear a case uh, based on whether it's moot or not. The first part of the test is, is there a live controversy? Um, and the second part of the test is, even if the judge finds there is no live controversy, that the case is moot, the judge can still exercise discretion to hear the case in any event. And if there's a variety of factors that judges consider, according to the Supreme Court of Canada, having to do with, uh, is there public interest in the case that to such a level that it would outweigh uh, the the amount, the number of days that the judge would have to hear the case and the resources it would take the courts to, to hear the case. And there's other factors such as are the parties still at, um, in an adversarial, uh, adverse to each other, and the court has to consider its judicial role, uh, whether it would be um, going into the political sphere by making a decision on a moot case or whether it is exercising its, its proper role. And so, uh, unfortunately, the judge found that there was no live controversy and also she exercised her discretion not to hear the case. And she said in her judgment, uh, which is one of our grounds of appeal, that the public interest was alleged and I mean, the one of the points that we argued was that this case has a greater public interest than um, perhaps another, one of one of the greatest cases in terms of public interest in Canadian history. 
And there's lots of other cases with important issues that come across the desk of the Supreme Court of Canada, for example. Um, but in terms of a, a case that affects, uh, we would say, every single person in Canada, uh, not just unvaccinated people. And keep in mind that the number of unvaccinated people who could not get on an airplane uh, during the, the time of the COVID mandate, uh, it came out in evidence it was about 5.2 million people. But it's not just the unvaccinated people, because there are vaccinated people who uh, perhaps wouldn't have got the vaccine, but for the fact that they wanted to go on a winter vacation, they wanted to go see their families overseas, they wanted to you know, travel on uh, an airplane to get across country for work. So those people, we say, uh, would want to know whether that, that mandate was lawful. I mean, some, some people were happy to take the vaccine. Some people would never take the vaccine and some people took it because they were, they felt pressured due to the mandates. So, you know, and obviously these, these mandates tore a lot of families apart. So, you know, our argument was that everybody would be interested to hear the outcome of the case, to, to have a judge go through the significant evidence that we put forth and that the Crown put forth. Combined, we had, um, I think it was 13 or 14 uh, affidavits. The Crown had numerous uh, witnesses, uh, government witnesses to testify about uh, the, the, the various COVID response and the need for the mandate. Uh, we ourselves, our group of uh, Peckford appellants, had uh, five expert witnesses and our co-appellants had another four expert witnesses. Then between our two teams, we had uh, nine doctors slash scientists and the government, of course, responded with their own team of doctors and scientists. So, you know, we had six weeks of intense cross-examinations and um, very important evidence came out, we would say, on both sides that we asked, you know, we asked the court to, to hear. And it's very important that Canadians know in our, uh, in, in our view, um, whether and to what extent Section 6 of the Charter, which is the right to uh, enter Canada, uh, and leave Canada, to what extent that right actually protects Canadians? Do they, is it actually a freedom to, to leave whenever you want? Or is that right? Can that right be conditional upon receiving what we say is, you know, a novel medication that uh, the evidence came out from the government actually in this case that the vaccine is still, was still in the, in the testing phase, it hadn't finished its phase three testing. That was from Health Canada's expert. So um, very important issues. Uh, Section 6 of the Charter uh, is um, a charter right that's not subject to the notwithstanding clause. It's a, it's a, a strong fundamental right and uh, hasn't been litigated uh, to this extent. And in, in a case like this ever, we've never had a, a situation where the federal government, uh, you know, essentially uh, is, has locked unvaccinated Canadians in the country um, because they, they really couldn't leave unless they wanted to swim across the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean, unless they wanted to take a canoe to see their families in South Africa. Like one of, my, one of our clients had family in South Africa she couldn't visit. Um, if you wanted to take a dinghy uh, all the way to England, uh, another one of our clients uh, had a home in England. Um, that was open to you, but um you know, obviously that's at your own peril and they would for sure perish along the way. So they're really, it, you know, Canada for all intents and purposes um, 
is our, our clients' homes. But um, unlike the rest of the world who were flying around uh, to countries who were open to vaccinated people, uh, Canadians weren't allowed to leave. But foreign nationals, interestingly enough, were allowed to leave uh, on, on airplanes. Okay, I have a question, though, about this term public interest, Mm -hmm. because I I seem to, in my own mind, define it two ways. One, that the public is interested, and the other, that it affects the public into going into the future. Now, am I wrong in either one of those, or which which is the one that they weigh, that it's going to affect the public going forward, or that they are simply intensely interested in the topic? Well... It's it's really the, the the former is the stronger stronger argument that the public mm. has an interest in in finding out uh, the legal landscape in terms of the charter rights and also I have to note it wasn't just a charter case it was also a case where we argued a jurisdictional legal issue which is did the minister of transport have the authority under the aeronautics act to make these orders which prohibited unvaccinated people from getting on airplanes. And our argument, that that argument had nothing to do with the science. Uh, that argument was basically, did the Aeronautics Act give him the power to make orders under uh, public health, really? And we say that wasn't, uh, that was unlawful, that the the wording of the act does not permit him to make orders like that. So that issue was left undecided. And Maxime Bernier, who's also one of our uh, appellants, he had a unique argument. Uh, he thought he... He argued that um, not only was Section Three of his of his charter rights infringed by the vaccine mandate, uh, which is um, you know the right of Canadians to participate in the political process, uh, but also that uh, the the mandate violated his rights under the Elections Act. So we had a variety of um, of legal arguments here, and the the judge in this case she focused. 100% on the fact that this was a constitutional case and she made comments uh, and in her analysis that um, you know this is a constitutional case that the law is not uncertain um, meaning that and she cited a bunch of cases that were COVID related cases she said the law is not uncertain um, and so these orders wouldn't be evasive of review but those COVID cases that she cited had nothing to do with um, Section 6 in the context of the air travel vaccine mandate. And they had absolutely nothing to do with the jurisdictional argument as to whether the Aeronautics Act gave the Minister of Transport the power to do what he did or the Elections Act issue. So, uh, you know, getting back to the legal test, um, you know, we say that the errors were made in the discretionary test as to whether, uh, you know, and it, it's a balancing test. So there are three parts to that test, whether there's an adversarial context, whether the concerns for judicial economy are outweighed by the public interest, and um, whether the court would be exercising its proper judicial role. And uh, we, we say she made a, a lot of errors uh, in in her analysis with respect to those three branches of that test. Number one is that she didn't write anything on the third branch of the test. So she missed part three of the test, which we said was an error of law. And uh, it's easier to get a decision overturned if a judge has made an error of law. If a judge has made an error of fact, 
uh, it's a lot more difficult to get a decision overturned. So, you know, our strongest argument um, was that she made an error of law in neglecting to attend to the third part of the Borowski discretionary test. Um, you know, we also, as I said, uh, pointed out that she was wrong when she said that the law is certain on these COVID tests and there's no need to hear this one. This one is very unique. It would be precedent setting. Uh, and also the public interest is not alleged. I mean, what? why did Canadians drive all the way to Ottawa for the Freedom Convoy? And why did we have an uh, Emergencies Act inquiry talked about uh, the reason that people went was because they were upset about the COVID mandates and the federal travel mandate was, I would say, top of that list. So the public interest was huge and Canadians in our argument really have to know whether they live in a country where it is lawful for the federal government to say you can't leave the country unless you've taken a novel vaccine. And if that is the case, uh, we would argue that Canadians with family overseas, they would either we would say they would be considering whether to move to where their families live out of the country because they may, they, if this comes back or another virus comes and they have a new vaccine and this kind of mandate is reintroduced, um, they, they may want to be where their families are, or they might want to get their families to try and move here somehow. But these are, these are very important. Um, uh, this is very important information and, and guidance that we're asking the courts for. And so it's deeply troubling uh, from a sense of, of, obtaining justice and the administration of justice for uh, the appellants and the, you know, 5.2 million unvaccinated Canadians behind them to know what their rights really are in, in, in Canada, especially uh, the Section 6 mobility right, which is fundamental to each person to be able to, to you know, come back into and, and to leave their own country. Yeah, well, part of what I had asked earlier reflected the notion that when this thing was withdrawn, there was some kind of threat from the Minister of Transport to bring it back. And I think that's where there was some uncertainty, and that's why I was talking about the future. Right. Was that highlighted at all in the, your appeal? Uh, yes. We, the, the lower court basically didn't agree with us the first time that that she could really do anything with the federal government's threat to bring back the mandate. You know, she said, well, hopefully this will never be repeated. And, you know, there's no legislation in place and they actually haven't done it. So I, you know, really can't really consider that. And we really only have, um, you know, a, a press conference where uh, this was announced that, you know, they might bring it back, but that's really, there's really nothing more here I can work with. Whereas we had a decision from the BC Supreme Court, which was just upheld on appeal on Friday. It was called uh, Cassian versus Dr. Bonnie Henry in British Columbia, and a decision uh, from the Ontario Superior Court of Justice um, on the Harji case, which was a challenge to the Ontario vaccine passport mandate. Uh, both of those decisions took into account in the discretionary analysis as to when the judge says, well, I'm going to either weigh, I'm going to weigh um, the factors and decide whether I'm going to exercise my discretion to hear the case. The judges in those cases took very seriously the threat to bring back the mandates, which you know occurred in British Columbia and in Ontario, where the government couldn't say that they weren't going to bring it back. 
And the judges in those cases said, yeah, no, that's a very, very strong factor here. And we're exercising our discretion to hear this case anyways, even though the mandate is gone, it's worth hearing because of this threat. And the judge in, in this case uh, decided, um, you know, she didn't even consider that in her analysis of whether to exercise her discretion. And we said that was an error as well, because she just completely left it out of, of her analysis. Yeah, actually, I had spoken to um, another lawyer, Marty Moore, on uh, the other podcast about that case that occurred in BC. And I'm wondering if you had a chance to, did you actually have a chance in court to refer to it? Because it, it was so recent. Yeah, so we referred to, so we, that case um, was, the oral decision was given in court on Friday, last Friday, and mm. we appeared in court this week on Wednesday. And all we could say was that a decision uh, was rendered and the appeal was dismissed, meaning that the appellants had won on the mootness issue. Um, but the case wasn't, there were no reasons at the time that we could hand up to the court, but just yesterday, uh, the court posted to its website the written reasons. So we sent a letter to the court yesterday and provided them with a decision. So hopefully, uh, you know, at least they'll have another decision to consider when they're deciding which way to go with our case. I'm wondering if I could uh, ask you to maybe just summarize the case against you. Uh, you know, what kind of gov arguments was the government putting forward against your appeal? Well, you know, uh, they argued that the judge did everything right, that uh, she didn't make any errors, that, you know, the, the public interest was not, was not there to the extent it would need to be there in order to overcome the fact that we would be spending five days in court and the judge would have to read 14,000 pages of evidence and it's just not worth her time uh, when the mandate has been lifted. Um, so basically just that the judge did everything right and um, they also focused on the fact that there was no life controversy because uh, one of our co-appellants, uh, Sean Ricard and Carl Harrison, they were arguing that there is still a life controversy, that the parties are still entitled to what's called declaratory relief, which is a declaration from the court that uh, their charter rights have been infringed. They, they argued that that was still a live issue. Um, we agree that's a live issue, that that wasn't what we argued. Uh, we decided to focus on the second part of the test whether the judge should exercise her discretion to whether she should have um, exercised it in terms of finding that she is going to hear our case. They focused uh, a lot more on the, the live controversy part. And the federal government's argument was, you know, there is no live controversy. The mandates are gone. And, um, you know, federal court of appeal, it's not your role to, uh, you know, to decide whether, whether, uh, you know, it, it's it's not your role to hear this case, basically, because the mandates are gone and there, there's no need to hear this case. And you shouldn't be granting a declaration in the absence of a law or order that's still in force. So, you know, they argued uh, very, very similar to what was in their written arguments and uh, basically just told the court, you know, we really don't need to be here. We really don't need to. You really don't need to. Uh, grant this appeal. There's no need for you to intervene here. The lower court did everything, you know, fine. There's no errors. And so an another one of the, the points that I wanted to make was that 
the lower court suggested that we should be uh, bringing a statement of claim, which is different than what we did here. What we did was we brought a notice of application for judicial review. Right. And that is a process that proceeds much more quickly than a statement of claim. A notice of application, uh, we had it filed at the very start of February in 2022, and we had a court date for October of 2022. So it went very quickly. Um, you know, both the government and the appellants moved very quickly. Nobody delayed. We had our cross examinations uh, intensively in six weeks, and we were ready to go within in less than a year. If you file a statement of claim, uh, it takes a lot longer to get through the process. And whereas we were scheduled to be in court for five days, uh, if you if you're in a, a, a trial situation, you can be there for weeks. So the court suggested here that um, in her analysis of, you know, how do we preserve judicial economy, that we should have brought a statement of claim, which would mean that it would use up far greater court resources and far greater court time. It would be weeks in court for a judge if we had brought a statement of claim as opposed to five days. So we argued that that was an error in her analysis when she's saying, in judicial economy, this would preserve judicial economy if, if you would have brought a statement of claim. That's just false. Right. It would have been a, a worse use of uh, the judge's time or That's right. a, a much longer period is what you're saying. So That was our argument. Right. Okay. That's good. How many uh, total clients did you have here and were they, a lot of them using or pre prepared to present separate arguments, at least in the initial trial? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we have, I had six appellants uh, that were in the group called the Peckford Appellants, which was led by the former Premier of Newfoundland, Mr. Brian Peckford. And uh, we had Mr. Uh, Ken Bejean uh, came to Ottawa to watch this appeal. And Miss Natalie Gurchich also came uh, to Ottawa. She was a client who uh, has family in South Africa. And she couldn't go and see. And so those, uh, we had six, six appellants uh, with the Peckford appellants. Um, three, uh, two of them came to the hearing. They all swore affidavits. And the uh, respondent government decided not to cross-examine any of them on their affidavits. So their evidence basically stood unchallenged. And they outlined why they thought their rights and freedoms were infringed. And... Uh, you know, we represent Maxime Bernier in a separate, separately filed application. And uh, he was also there in Ottawa with us this week. And he also filed an, an affidavit outlining uh, why he, you know, he believed that his charter rights were being infringed and also his rights under the Election Act as he's a, um, you know, he's a leader of a federal party and he's trying to grow his party. And his political opponent puts in a, an order basically preventing him from flying across the country and it, it really prevented him from being on an even playing field with his political opponents and so argument was that was um, counterintuitive to a functioning democracy so those issues are very important uh, for the court to to rule on and so it's extremely disappointing uh, and, and not just for the appellants but for canadians as a whole because, again, uh, Canadians need to know 
the legal landscape around these very important issues. Can a political opponent uh, basically prevent his opponents or her opponents from from campaigning? And uh, that's just one of the many important issues in this case. Well, I suppose it could be tried in the court of public opinion, but that kind of is where I'm going to go with my next question. You know, after that court case was ruled moot or irrelevant, what became of those 14,000 pages, including all that expert testimony? Does it go public? Are you allowed to send it out to the public so they could read it all if they felt ambitious and wanted to judge for themselves? Yeah, well, when, you know, when we originally filed that material, uh, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is funding the case, uh, had it posted, uh, you know, in a, in a news release. And so that's on the internet. It's on our website. Uh, you can click. It takes a long time to go through everything, but it is on the internet. And I believe that um, our, our co-appellants represented by different counsel, uh, Carl Harrison and Sean McCard, also posted those 14,000 pages uh, on Twitter. So it is out there. Um, it's certainly not subject to any publication ban. Uh, that evidence okay. is, is, in the, is public and, you know, people can find it online. They could certainly go to the federal court and ask to, to review it there, just like evidence in any court case, as long as there's no publication ban, as long as it's not sealed for any reason. So yeah, it's, it's a real shame uh, because there's, you know, very uh, important information that came out during those cross-examinations and it's, uh, it's, it's very, um, it's really unfortunate that when, when you have experts on both sides who spent hours putting in their time, uh, you know, drafting expert reports, pulling all the available science, they take time away from their jobs and from their families to, you know, cut, write an independent expert report summarizing their their positions and on these very important issues only to have it only to have the case not heard in our view that's um you know again that's it's counterintuitive to the proper administration of justice uh the case should be heard they're very important issues that are very um canadians need to know they need to know whether what the government did here was lawful and part of that the answer to that question, a lot of the answer to that question is found in the science and what the judge does with, with the science on this case when it comes to the constitutional issue. When it comes to the jurisdictional issue, as I said, um, the science doesn't matter or the Elections Act issue. But uh, when you have an order like this that is this divisive, uh, causes families and friends to split from each other and separates people across oceans. It's uh, highly distressing that the case is not able to be heard and proper, be per properly adjudicated. Oh, yeah. I'm wondering how long it's going to take for them to come to a decision on this appeal. I suppose you don't aren't given any indication at this point. No, I mean, uh, you know, the justices told us as we were wrapping up that they would get a decision as soon as possible, but uh, ju judges are busy people. They have a lot on their plate. So we could be waiting, we could be waiting months. Uh, you know, I've waited six or seven months for a court of appeal decision. That's not abnormal. So, you know, and we'll, 
once we get the decision, depending on which way it goes, we'll decide what our next step would be. Well, if uh, they decided against you, what would be uh, an available step? Would you, can you push it upwards to the Supreme Court at that point? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the Supreme Court, it's difficult to get heard by the Supreme Court because they mm -hmm. they only take approximately, I'm going to say, and I looked at that stuff before, about 60 out of 700 applications annually. Right. So a very small number of cases make it up to the Supreme Court, and you have to convince the Supreme Court of Canada in a written application why your case has national importance, and they decide amongst themselves which cases they they want to hear. So that would be an option for us to attempt to take it up to the Supreme Court, but there's no guarantee that they would hear it. Obviously, at the top of the list of reasons would be it affected 5.2 million Canadians directly. <laughs> Ah, yes. Okay, well, thank you so much, Allison, for taking the time to fill us in on your uh, trip, and I hope the jet lag has cleared up already. I almost. hope to actually... <laughs> What's that? Is that almost? <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, I hope to speak to you again soon. Great. Thanks so much, Kevin. Have a good weekend. You too.